I want to welcome those who are listening online. Glad you are joining us as well. Your notes are on the screen this morning or in your Bible app, version. Just go to events, Circle Drive will come up. You can click on that. You can add to your notes. You can save them and share them with your friends. Well, today we're bringing conclusion to uh, some talks that I've been giving about when bad is good. And it's appropriate that we, we talk about this on Easter Sunday. Uh, would you agree that things aren't always as they appear? Uh, when you become a parent, for example, you realize that your, your children do not see the world as you do. Things are not as they appear. I mean, your kid in physics and chemistry class thinks it's a waste of time, but little do they know later in life, they're going to see something different. Or if you've raised a teenage daughter and you do not like her boyfriend and her boyfriend breaks up with her, I mean, she's in depression and you're ready to kill the fatted calf and celebrate that daughter that was lost is now found. Right? Things aren't always as they appear. So today, I want to talk to you about the relationship between life and God because for many of us, we get this confused. If life gets really bad and you're disappointed, it's easy to assume this, that there is no God or there's no personal God or perhaps there is no God at all. But hopefully by the end of this session, we will see that some things are not as they appear. Now, I understand this. When dreams don't come true and you cannot get a break and, you know, your siblings move on or life for people around you seems to be working, but it doesn't work for you. And, you know, people try to encourage you and they say, hey, just pray more, you know, just trust God more so you do. But after a while, it's easy to conclude that God doesn't like you and that he is absent. And maybe there is no God at all. And for some of you, you've turned your frustration towards God. And what makes it complicated is if you were raised in a church and you were taught to believe in a personal God and that God was behind everything in your life, then it's virtually impossible to begin to confuse life experience with God and place your frustrations and your disappointments on the God you, that you were taught loves you. Well, this was the case with today's character. When his life spun out of control, we don't know the name of this guy. We don't even know how old he, his, he was, what he did in life. But his life tanked. His life tanked. And we he, we, he finds himself in a Roman jail, which was usually just a hole in the ground, and he is condemned to death. He is so violent and so unpredictable that he cannot be trusted as a slave. His only value is to illustrate the futility of defying Rome. His death is a warning to onlookers that this is the fate of those who rebel against the Roman Empire. This man 
has probably seen many crucifixions in his life. He has seen the remains. He's felt the smell. He's heard the screams. He knew that when he would be up on that cross, he too would scream and curse. But in the end, death would take this man. His body would be peeled down from the cross and placed in a wagon and hauled to the city dump and dumped there in the, in the dump. There would be no defense, no mourners, no sympathy. His family, his friends, his go government, even God has abandoned this person. He would die like any common criminal. And this man decided to die defiantly. The morning they dragged him out of his cell, he discovered that, there were, that he would not die alone. There were two others crucified that day. Perhaps he knew one of them, and he would discover that the other was Jesus Christ, the Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. The silver lining in the cloud was that a crowd had gathered to see Jesus Christ die a controversial death. Luke tells us how this worked out, and this is really important, especially if you're new to church. This is not a Bible story or a once-upon-a-time story. This is not even a religious story. This was written by someone who said at the beginning of his document, the Gospel of Luke was written upon thorough investigation of all that transpired. He was just getting the facts. This document was so accurate that people meticulously copied this document to pass it on. That is because Jesus' life was so significant that people wanted to know the details of his life. Over time, this document was called the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus. And 200 years after Dr. Luke wrote this account, it was included and bound in what we call the Bible. Now, before there was a Bible, and before there was a New Testament, and before there was a church, before any of that, Luke meticulously researched and documented what happened. He was the wolf blitzer of the day, except he didn't have a bias. He just wrote down the facts. Now, here's what Luke said happened that day that Jesus was executed. You'll see this in Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, when I read this account, I tend to read it without pause. But there is so much packed into this word crucified. There is pain and noise. There is terror and violence and agony. And in some cases, there is mourning for those who are up on the cross. It took hours and in some cases, days before someone would die. Someone, sometimes it was with ropes, other times it was ropes and nails. 
The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they certainly perfected it. Now Luke tells us that the two criminals on either side of Jesus were hurling profanity at the people passing by who came to watch this spectacle. And while the violence continues, and the screaming, and the pain, and the commotion, in the center of all of that, in, the, the, in between the two guys, the two guys hear the, the Jewish rabbi utter a word that was rarely ever uttered from a Roman cross. In verse 34 it says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, while this is all going on, it says that the Roman soldiers divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, Luke says that while there was all of this commotion going on, Jesus was praying to his Father. And his prayer was not for himself. It was for those who had gathered around the cross to watch him die, particularly the Jewish rulers, those who had being active and getting him up on that cross. The rulers who were threatened by Jesus, by his miracles and by his teaching. The crowds that followed Jesus that ticked him off. And they were there watching Jesus die on this cross. They finally got him up on the cross. It was a great day for them. So they were watching Jesus die there. Verse 35 says the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, this had, this had to have a sting in it. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Now there was probably a sense of smug satisfaction with Jesus up there on the cross. The rulers had most to lose from Jesus' success. They were constantly shamed by Jesus' teaching. Jesus would answer their questions, and now he would finally be silenced by his death. From now on, they were in charge. This was the moment of revenge and anger towards Jesus for his two and a half years of teaching and shaming them. Now they didn't have to fear the crowds anymore. Jesus was as harmless as a caged animal. There was another group at the crucifixion. Verse 36, it says, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. Now, if you've seen movies of the crucifixion, usually the cross is elevated up on a hill. But truthfully, it was only a couple inches off of the ground. The whole idea of the crucifixion was humiliation. So people were able to walk right up to the cross and look at the, the criminal on the cross and the eyes, and they could spit in his face and walk away. They could scream in his face. They were face to face with the people that were up on the cross. And it says of the Roman soldiers, they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. The, Roman, the Romans wanted it to say he claimed he was the king of the Jews, but Herod insisted that it be written, this is the king of the Jews. 
So the soldiers play off of the sign and mock Jesus who's up on the cross. Finally, it wasn't enough that the two other criminals got into the name calling as well. Maybe they couldn't stand Jesus' passive resignation to the circumstances. And Matthew tells us the criminals started to turn their animosity away from the crowd and they began to focus it towards Jesus. Verse 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Imagine that, this guy up on the cross next to Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Hey, aren't you the special one, the, the anointed one that could do something about this? If you were the Messiah, this would not be happening. If there was a just and righteous God, this injustice would not occur. And then they said, save yourself and save us. But you are not the Christ, they were thinking. If there is a God, none of this would be happening. There is no justice in the world, and therefore there is no personal God. Now the story is about to change. We all know what happens because we look back. We know the end of the story. But if any of these criminals would have been asked, where is God? They couldn't answer a meter to the left or to the right of me. And suddenly, in the midst of all of this chaos, one of the criminals stops shouting and senses something strangely senseless about this rabbi up in the cross. Maybe he heard Jesus' prayer and, and he's thinking, maybe this is a righteous man. Maybe he has been sent from God and maybe we have it all wrong. So it says in verse 40, the other crim criminal rebuked the, the first criminal and said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? He's saying, we, we have it wrong, guy. The implication is that they were under the same sentence as Jesus Christ and he sees something different about this Jesus. He's suffering unjustly. And he's suffering unjustly without abandoning his faith. Jesus is not abandoning his faith based on the way life is and how others have treated him. He's not judging his God by his own death. Besides, this criminal says, we are punished justly for what we're getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And the criminal begins to see Jesus in a whole new way that no one in the crowd sees. Now, this is so rich. This is so interesting. Because we see that Jesus is now having his last conversation on earth, not with a righteous person, but with an irreligious person, one of the most notorious sinners in the whole region. And there's Jesus paying attention to this criminal on the cross. And, and this criminal, his thought process must be, wait a minute. If an innocent man suffers like a guilty man and he can maintain his faith in God, if an innocent man who is experiencing life the same way that I'm experiencing life, 
if he is unjustly treated as I am being treated and can still maintain his faith in God. Think about this. How much more for a guilty man for whom there is some justification for his suffering. And then it dawns on him, my God, this is the Messiah. In the center of all of this chaos and all of the shouting and all of the cursing and all of the smell that is at the cross there that day, he turns to Jesus. And then he says, Jesus. And this is not so much a question as it, as it is a sincere request of a dying man. He says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom. Because now, now I see it. Now I get it. Not because of anything I've done. Not because of who I am. In spite of everything I've done, would you remember me when you come into my kingdom? Because if you can maintain faith in a good God in the midst of these circumstances, perhaps there is a good and just God after all. Isn't this amazing? And then Jesus says in verse 43, Truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is so amazing. In spite of all this man has done today, not because he was rededicating his life, because there was no way that he could change his life. There was nothing he could do in the future. There was no from now on. From now on, I'll go to the temple. From now on, I'll be... There was no now on. From across, there was a desperate plea for mercy and grace. And Jesus looks over to him and says, Today, today, my friend, you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus' last message to us before he dies is this. My thoughts about you are not reflected in what is happening to you. My thoughts about you are not reflected in what is happening to you. Friends, this is good news because many of you are going through the, what the old writers used to call the dark night of the soul. When things are not working out and you've prayed to God and it feels like heaven is brass and no one's listening. And you feel that God is absent and your life is spinning out of control and you're tempted to say, there is no God. That God is not interested in me. God is not the God of your personal experience. What if life has left you broken? And what if life has left you abandoned? But what if God has not? What if life has not reflected to you the true nature of God? That is why we offer places like Alpha where you can come and you can bring your questions about life, about 
your purpose about God and who Jesus is because there's a lot of bad press out there about God and life in Jesus. And it's a time to process it and to say, this is who he really is. It's a time to bring your questions and to talk about it and to discuss it and debate. As I've noticed, kids growing up in a family they, they tend to remember the worst about your family and they don't really have a true picture. And your kids will say things about what happened and you look at them and say, what? And at Alpha, we come and we eat together and we watch a video together and then we say, what's the purpose of life? Who is Jesus? Who is God? What's he really like? Now, here's what happened. These have been dragged out early in the morning, and now, it says, verse 44, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land. Everything started to turn dark. And it says, it was about 3 in the afternoon. Now, I know they never had a Rolex. They didn't have a watch. They didn't really know what time it was. But it says in verse 45, the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, if you grew up in church, you know the significance of this. There was a curtain in the temple that separated the holy place of God called the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and essentially the rest of the world. It was only on special occasions that the high priest, after he had gone through extensive ceremonies, could actually enter into the Holy of Holies and perform the religious uh, cultures and expressions on behalf of the people who were on the other side of the curtain. He carried all of their sin and imperfections into that place in order for God to forgive. So there was this this separation between God and the rest of the people. And it says that this veil, this curtain, was torn in two. It was ripped not from the bottom up, from, but from the top down to signify that everybody from now on, from this moment on, would be able to enter into the presence of God and not die. God would now be accessible. He would be near. You wouldn't need a special designation to get in to see God. And in this moment, from the cross, everything that separated every man and every woman and all mankind from God was being taken care of on the hill, on cross, by Jesus Christ. And here is Jesus' last statement there on the cross. Jesus called out and he said, Father. Again, he's praying. And he said, Father. And here it is again. And Jesus is talking and he says, Father. Father who could have stopped all of this. Father who, have, who could have kept this from happening. But Father, you could have spared me from this moment. 
but Father, who I have decided to trust anyways, because you're good and you're my Father, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, the text says he breathed his last because he knew he was in his Father's hands. I ask you a question this morning, and here's the question. And maybe you have never thought about it in these terms. Have you, because of life, confused life with God? Have you? Have you confused your life with God? Have you drawn conclusions about God because of what you've experienced and what has happened to you in life? Based on prayers that were not answered? On what happened to your loved ones that you thought God should not allow anyone to experience? Were you making conclusions about God because of the things that happened in your life? natural and it is sometimes easy and sometimes avoidable you lost faith because of this confusion and you walked away from God you've walked away from the church you've walked away from Christianity and in a sense you shake your fist at God and you say why did you let this happen to me you are not a good God it's natural I see it all the time. It happens. It's happened to some of my friends. I want you to say this morning that God can be trust, trusted in spite of your experience. In spite of your circumstances, you can trust God. Because God is not your life. God sent Jesus Christ into this world to bring you life. To give you life. And as John said, to give you life abundantly. To show you who the Father is. And Matthew and Mark and Luke write honestly to say, even Jesus Christ who is God did not have privilege. He never walked into the restaurant and said, hey, I'm God. I like the corner table. He lived as ordinary as anybody ever lived. He lived without privilege. He went through every hardship you have ever experienced. And he was God. He was dealt life with all of its imperfections. He never ever played the God card. He knew what it meant to be lonely. He knew what it meant to be hungry. Jesus was often tired. He was abandoned by friends. He was betrayed by one of his close associates. He was abused. He went through anything that any of us have ever gone through. And Jesus, in spite of life and in spite of his experience, displayed confidence in the God called God his Father, and he paved the way for each of us to have confidence in God. Friends, your life is not who God is. God is way higher than that. And he promises this 
that he will go with you. He will go with you through the experience of life. He never promises to take you out of your difficulty and pain, but he promises he will go with you through the difficulties and problems of life. As a pastor, I've been at many gravesides. I've sat in hospital rooms. I've looked in the eyes of children when their family is blowing up. I've seen parents who have lost their children. People who seemed they could never get a break. I've been with them. And some of those people display amazing faith in a loving God. And they know it's only a season. And there's more to come. Their faith in God is what pulls them through. And they know that there's eternity coming. And this God can be trusted. And they show up and they serve and they're generous because they know that there's a place called paradise. And there's a place called heaven where every injustice will be made right. And our joy will be made full. And we will experience all of the greatness of God. And they know they can go through it because there's hope. And that hope can be yours today. I know there are some here this morning you find this hard. Life has dealt disappointment after disappointment with God. Could I just encourage you this morning? When you open your hands and surrender to Jesus Christ, instead of clenching your fist in anger, when you finally decide that you're sick and tired of living the way you are, you become a candidate for the life-giving power of Jesus Christ and his changing grace and his love that he wishes to pour out in you. And it can define your life. It can change your life if you would just trust him. We began by stating that some things are not as they appear. All along, Jesus was trusting his father And throughout Jesus' suffering, he was aware, he was aware of this, that in three days, his son would come out of the grave alive. And he knew that the suffering was important so that the victory would be sweet. And God was about to demonstrate that he had paid for our injustice, and he made a way for us to experience abundant life. Dr. Luke when he documented what happened that day, that Jesus appeared. He appeared after his, his death and being laid in the tomb. He appeared to the women 
He appeared to his disciples and to more than 500 people at one time. And God was about to say through Jesus' resurrection that his name is called victory. His name is victory. And that is the God that you can trust. No matter what you're going through today, God can be your victory. He can give you a new name. Now as the team sings, Praise to Christ our King. And it, the words are so rich. I want you to remember Jesus' final breath on the cross is now alive in you. For you who open your life to Jesus Christ. And we can all rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrected in me and in thousands of people around the world. And this can be your experience today. No matter what you've gone through and what you're going through today, trust Jesus with your life. Our God has robbed the grave and your eternal life can begin today. Would you open your life to Jesus Christ?